0: Com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe The Human Being Image of Creation, formerly known as Man Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 13. I have now brought together many and various matters which may help us gain a sense of the structure of the universe in its relation to man. We have seen and this must be emphasized again and again, that the universe cannot be understood without man. In other words, we cannot understand the universe in itself without relating it to man and vice versa. If one wishes to form a simple, clear idea of man's connection with the universe, one need only think of a theme in elementary astronomy. The so called obliquity of the ecliptic, close quote. that is, the oblique position of the Earth's axis in relation to the line, the curve, which passes through the zodiac. This obliquity of the ecliptic may be understood and even interpreted as you will. We are not for the moment concerned with whether it accords with reality or not, but rather with bringing a certain fact to your notice. If the Earth's axis the axis on which the earth turns daily, were perpendicular to the plane through the zodiacal ecliptic, then day and night would be equal throughout the year over the whole earth. If the earth's axis lay in the ecliptic, then over the whole earth one half of the year would be day and one half night. Both these extremes do in a certain respect actually occur at the equator and at the poles. But in between lie regions where the length of day varies through the year. We need only reflect a little on this matter to arrive at the tremendous significance for the whole evolution of earthly civilization of the position of the earth's axis in space. All of us throughout the globe would be Eskimos if the axis lay in the ecliptic, and if it were ident- vertical to the ecliptic, the whole Earth would be filled with the kind of civilization that prevails at the equator. Of course, an understanding of the truth depends upon what interpretation we give it, but any interpretation of this position of the Earth's axis will serve to make one perceive the connection between man, his culture and civilization and the structure of the universe. However we interpret this fact, it compels us to regard man and the earth as a unity, at least as far as his physical being is concerned, not as an independent and separate entity. As physical man, excuse me, as physical being, man is not a separate entity but is part of the whole earth, just as a hand, separate from the human organism, cannot be regarded as having a separate existence in any true sense. It dies. It dies. It can only be imagined in connection with the organism. A rose dies when plucked, and as a reality it is only conceivable in connection with the rose bush, which is rooted in the earth. So too to understand man in his entirety, in his totality, one cannot regard him as simply enclosed in the boundaries of his skin. Thus what we experience on earth must be considered in connection with the earth's axis, It is important in a worldview based on reality that what is a partial truth should not be interpreted as the whole truth. To approach the totality of man as a being of soul and spirit, we need to understand that his physical nature is not a self-contained separate reality. As a being of soul and spirit, the human being is a complete and self-contained individual entity. What he inhabits between birth and death, however, the physical and etheric bodies, are not separate realities in themselves. They are part of the whole earth. And as we shall presently see, they are even part of another whole. This brings us to something which must be observed still more closely, which I keep returning to again and again. The ideas we form of man almost always tend unconsciously to our regarding him as a kind of solid body. True, we are aware that he is not precisely a hard body, that he is to some extent plastic, but we are very often unaware that he consists of 75% or more fluid and that only the residue can be regarded as a solid mineral being. Man is really 75% a water being. Now I ask you, therefore, is it possible to describe the human organism as is usually done, in sharp outlines, saying, quote, here we have the lobes of the brain, here this organ, close quote, and so forth, and then assume that the solidly circumscribed organs combine in their activity to bring about the activity of the whole organism. There is no sense whatever in that. Instead, we should bear in mind the fact that within the limits of our skin we are more like a sea in flux and movement, that what is purely inwardly surging fluidity in us, therefore, also has a meaning, and that we should not describe man as if he were more or less a solid body. In spiritual science this has very deep significance, for precisely when we consider the solid in man, which is in a certain way related to what is the external mineral world, we find that what is solid in a human being has a certain relation to the earth. We have observed all sorts of connection and correspondence between man and the world around him, and now we will examine the relation of his solid substance to the earth. This connection exists. The watery element in man has, however, no primary connection with the earth but with the planetary universe beyond, and especially with the moon. Precisely as the moon, not directly but indirectly has a relation to the ebb and flow of the tides, to certain configurations of the earth's fluid element, so too it has a connection with what takes place in the fluid part of the human organism. Yesterday I described two kinds of astronomy, the first of which applies to the sun and also to the earth. We ourselves are part of that astronomy inasmuch as our organisms contain solid substances lunar astronomy however is different we are affected by lunar astronomy in so far as it is connected with what is fluid within us thus we see that the forces of the cosmos work into both solid and fluid aspects of our physical nature the far greater significance of this though is that what we call our ego has a direct influence on what is solid in us and that what we call our astral body has an indirect influence on our fluid element. So that what works from the soul and spirit upon our organization comes also into connection with all the forces of the cosmos via our physical body. Throughout history people have always observed these movements of the cosmos from the most varied points of view. When we look back to the ancient Persian civilization, we find that people were already researching into the movements of the universe. The Chaldeans did this too, and the Egyptians. And it is not without interest to study the Egyptians' approach to the movements of the universe. Of course there were apparently quite material reasons for the Egyptians to study the connection between earth and outer cosmos, for their land depended upon the inundations of the Nile, which took place precisely when the sun was in a definite position in the universe. This position could be determined by that of Sirius, so that the Egyptians had come to make observations about the position of the sun in relation to what we now call the fixed stars. The Egyptian priests, especially in their mysteries, undertook extensive researches into the relation of the sun to the other stars. As I have already said, the Egyptians knew perfectly well that each year the sun appeared to have shifted its position in the heavens in regard to the other stars, and they used this fact to calculate that the stars, whether apparently or really as immaterial just now, had a certain velocity in their daily course around the heavens and that the daily movement of the sun also had a certain velocity, but not quite so great as that of the stars. The sun always lagged somewhat behind. The Egyptians knew and recorded the fact that the sun lagged behind the stars by about one day in seventy-two years, so that when a particular star, which rose with the sun in a particular year, rises again seventy-two years later, The sun does not rise with it, but twenty-four hours later. A star belonging to the world of fixed stars, a star in the zodiac, outstrips the sun by one day, one full day in every seventy-two years. Multiply seventy-two by three hundred and sixty, and we obtain twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty years. That is a number which we often meet with. It is the time the sun takes as it increasingly lags behind to get back to its starting point, having thus gone round the whole zodiac. Every seventy-two years, therefore, the sun falls behind by exactly one degree, for a circle has, as we know, three hundred and sixty degrees. According to this reckoning, the Egyptians divided the great cosmic year, which really comprises twenty-five thousand nine hundred and twenty years, into 360 days, but such a day was 72 years long. And 72 years, what is that? It is the average span of a human life. Certainly there are individuals who live to be older, others not so old, but it is the average length of a human life. Thus one can say that the universe is so constructed that it sustains each human life for a solar day which is 72 years. True, we are emancipated from that. We can be born at any time. But as physical human beings, between birth and death, our life here is governed by the solar day. Referring to historical records, one generally finds that the ordinary year of the Egyptians was reckoned as 360 days, not 365 and a fourth, as it usually is. Until later on this was found to be at odds with the course of the stars, and the other five days had to be inserted. How did it come about that the Egyptians originally took 360 days for the year? In the cosmic year a degree, that is a 360th part, is actually a cosmic day of 72 years. Thus in the Egyptian Mysteries it was taught that man is so connected with the cosmos that the duration of his life is one day of the cosmic year. He was thus integrated into the cosmos. His relation to the cosmos was made clear to him. But through circumstances which belong to the decadence of the whole evolution of the Egyptian people, the essential nature of man and his connection with the cosmos was not then made known to the wide mass of the Egyptians, that is, characteristic of those times. It was said that if all people knew the nature of their being, how it is integrated into the cosmos, and that the duration of their own life is subsumed in the duration of the sun's revolution, then they would not allow themselves to be ruled, for each would regard himself as a member of the universe. Only those who... Excuse me, only those were allowed to know this who, it was believed, were called to be leaders. The rest were not to possess such knowledge of the cosmos, but a knowledge of daily things only. This is connected with the decadence of the Egyptian civilization. And while it was right, in respect to many other things, that people not ready for this should not be initiated into the mysteries, This was extended for the sole purpose of giving power to the leaders and rulers. Now a great deal of what permeates our human souls today has originally come from Oriental sources. Traditional Christianity, too, contains much that has come from Oriental sources. But Roman Christianity especially was influenced by a strong impulse that came from Egypt. Just as the Egyptians were kept in ignorance about their real connection with the cosmos, so in certain circles of Romanism the view prevails that people must be kept in ignorance of their connection with the cosmos as it was brought about through the mystery of Golgotha. Hence the fierce conflict which arises when, from the inner needs of our age, we emphasize that the event of Golgotha is not simply something which must be regarded as unrelated to the rest of our outlook, but that it must rather be integrated into it. When we show how what took place on Golgotha is really connected with the whole universe and its constitution, it is therefore regarded as the worst heresy to describe Christ as the Son Spirit, as we have done. It must not be Supposed that the point at issue is not well known to people in high places who do their utmost to combat what I have just said. They are fully aware of such things. But just as the Egyptian priests knew quite well that the ordinary year does not have 360 days, but 365 and a fourth, so certain people are perfectly aware that the matter with which the Christ mystery deals is also connected with the sun mysteries. But present-day humanity is to be hindered from receiving this knowledge, the very knowledge that it needs, for as I have already said, such circles much, much prefer a materialistic view of the universe to spiritual science. Materialistic science also has its practical consequences, in which, again, the present time may be compared with ancient Egypt. As I have said, Egyptians were dependent upon the course of the sun, in other words, on the relation of the earthly to the heavenly, as regards their external civilization. Withholding knowledge of the connection of cosmic phenomena and their effect on the cultivation of the land represented a certain power in the hands of the declining priesthood, for thereby the Egyptian laborers had to submit to direction from the priests Who had the requisite knowledge? Now, if the European and American civilizations were to retain their present character, adhering only to the materialistic Copernican view of the universe, with its offshoot, the Kant Laplace theory, a materialistic outlook would necessarily arise to explain earthly phenomena, biological, physical, and chemical. It would be impossible for this kind of materialistic outlook to include a moral world order. It could not embrace the Christ event. For it is impossible to be a believer in the materialistic view of the world and, at the same time, a Christian. That is an inner lie. It is something that cannot be, if one is honest and upright. Hence it was inevitable that the practical consequences should be seen in Europe and American culture, of the split between materialism on the one hand and a moral worldview, creed and faith on the other, which has no relation to a materialistic outlook. The consequence of this was that those who had no outward reason for being inwardly dishonest threw faith overboard and made the materialistic worldview the basis for human life also. Thus the materialistic worldview also became one which governs society. The further consequence of this for our European and American civilization would be that man's view of things would become purely materialistic. He would know nothing of the earth's connection with cosmic powers in the sense that we have described it. Within certain elite circles, however, knowledge of the connection with the cosmos would remain just as the Egyptian priests kept the knowledge of the Platonic year, the great cosmic year, and the great cosmic day. And such circles could hope then to rule the people who under materialism degenerate into barbarism. Of course these things have been said today only from a sense of duty toward truth. But such a duty to truth demands that they be said. It is important that a certain number of people should realize how necessary it is to give the mystery of Golgotha its cosmological significance. This significance must be recognized by a number of people who, for their part, undertake a certain responsibility that the fact should not remain hidden from earthly humanity, the fact that humanity is connected with the super-earthly spirit who lived in Palestine in the man Jesus at the beginning of our era. It is necessary that knowledge should not be withheld of the entrance of Christ from the super-earthly world into the man Jesus of Nazareth. Such knowledge and understanding is implicit in overcoming that dishonesty which is so general today in questions of worldview and religious faith. For what do people do nowadays? We are told on the one hand that the earth moves in an ellipse round the sun and has evolved as the Kant-Laplace theory explains, and we subscribe to this. And on the other hand we are told that at the beginning of our era such and such events took place in Palestine. These two things are accepted without being connected. People accept them and think it of no consequence. It is not without consequence, however, for it is much less evil when we are conscious of such a lie and discrepancy than when it takes shape unconsciously and degrades us and drags us down. For if we consider a lie as it appears in a person's conscious awareness, every time he falls asleep it leaves his physical and etheric bodies with his consciousness and lives on in spaceless, timeless being, in eternal being while the person is in dreamless sleep. There is prepared all which can result from the lie in the future. That is, everything is made ready to correct it, if it is in our consciousness. But if the lie is unconscious, it remains with our physical and etheric bodies lying in bed. When we do not occupy these bodies, it then belongs to the cosmos, and not to the earthly cosmos alone but to the whole cosmos. There it works for the destruction of the cosmos, above all for the destruction of the whole of humanity, for this destruction begins in humanity itself. Man can escape what threatens humanity in this way by no other means than by striving after inner truth in relation to these supreme questions of existence. Thus the impulses of our time Are, in a sense, calling on humanity today to realize that a materialistic astronomy should no longer exist which knows nothing of how the event of Golgotha took shape at a particular point in time. Every astronomy that includes the moon in the structure of the universe in just the same way as it does the sun and earth, instead of allowing the two streams to run into one another, but still as separate streams, Every such astronomy is no Christian astronomy, but a heathen one. Therefore a Christian perspective must reject every theory of evolution which describes the universe homogeneously. If you follow my book titled Occult Science, you will see how in the description of the Saturn and Sun periods of evolution the stream divides into two, which then intermingle and work together. Here we have two streams. In the descriptions usually given, however, the ideas presented accord wholly with the non-Christian, heathen stream, right down to the smallest details. You know that Darwinian theorists, describing the evolution of organic form, would say that first there were simple organic forms, then more complicated forms, then more and more complicated forms, and so forth, until man evolved. But this is not so. If we take man as threefold, his head alone has evolved from the lower animal form. What is joined to it has arisen later. Thus we cannot say that in our vertebral column we have something which transforms itself into head, but we must see things as follows. Our head certainly arose from earlier structures which were spine-like, But the present spine has nothing to do with that sequence of evolution, it is a later appendage. What is now our head organization has arisen from a differently formed spine. This I say for those who are interested in the theory of descent. I mention it so that you may see that a straight line leads from cosmic considerations to consideration of what lies in human evolution, and so that you may see the necessity for An enlightened spiritual science in all the different realms of knowledge and life. For science must not simply continue to develop, as did the science of the last century, under the influence of the materialistic view of the universe, which is itself the offspring of a materialistic comprehension of Christianity. We owe materialism to the materialization of the Christian view of the universe. Teaching of the cosmic Christ must be re-established in opposition to the materialized form of Christianity we have today. This is the most important task of our time, and until its importance is realized, man will not be able to see clearly in any domain I wanted to tell you these things because they will enable you to understand better why ill-willed opponents fight so strenuously against what we are nowadays presenting to the world. I was obliged to connect this whole study with a kind of cosmology, consideration of which we will continue in the next lecture. The end of Lecture 13